If you're following along in the Blue Pew Bibles, it is on page 51. Page 51, again, Exodus chapter 9, and we will begin in verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now... I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rain down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more before we get into the passage. Oh, gracious Father, we are thankful for the word as it was just now read, and we plead for your help, for your spirit's presence and ministry to us, giving us understanding into your truth, that your truth may sanctify us, may make us holy, make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, this fall quarter, I've been leading one of our Sunday school classes called Christianity Explored. It's a class where we've been watching videos, laying out the basics of the gospel as we're going through the gospel of Mark. And the videos have been really solid. They've been offering us some powerful illustrations for explaining the gospel. 
and I've really enjoyed also the, the table discussions that happen after we watch. We also have done something uh, different this time around. We carved out some time at the end of each class to cover some FAQs, some frequently asked questions having to do with anything related to the Christian faith or the Bible. These are questions that the students came up with in our first class. And so each week, I, uh, I take some time to tackle a few really big questions in a short amount of time with as concise of an answer as I can. And one of the questions that we looked at the other day had to do with the apparent difference in the depictions of God in the New Testament versus in the Old. And the questioner wondered why God, and, and just the Old Testament in general, comes across as rougher and crueler and more primitive than what you find later on in the New Testament? And it's a good question. It's a common one. There was actually another question uh, submitted in like manner. And it really got me thinking about Exodus. It really got me thinking about the section that we're looking at this morning. We're we're covering a, a larger section than normal this morning. Instead of having a sermon on each of the ten plagues, we decided to cover um, the first nine all together in one sermon and then save an entire sermon for the tenth plague um, um, and, 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 and also and, and, and then the exodus itself. Now, last week we already looked at the first plague where the Nile was turned into blood because that was found in chapter 7. And so this morning we're going to be looking actually at chapters 8, 9, and 10 in just one big swoop and we're going to focus our attention on what these plagues as a whole are teaching us. And as I was you know, preparing uh, to answer that particular FAQ question, I, my mind kept going back to today's passage, to, to the 10 plagues, and how a lot of people have trouble with what we read here. It, it disturbs them as they read about God sending these plagues sending pestilence to to kill livestock or sending down hail and lightning or covering people in darkness and, of course, killing the firstborn of Egypt. It's chapters like these that make people question whether the God of the Old Testament actually is rougher and crueler and more primitive. Now, I know a lot of non-Christians react this way when they encounter passages like this in the Bible, but actually even Christians feel the same way. And, and if, that's, if that's you, actually, if you have a hard time with passages like this, with the idea of worshiping and serving a God who would send these kinds of plagues, I don't want you to be ashamed of that. If you have a hard time with this, I don't want you to feel like here in this church you can't admit something like that. I think we should all admit that these are tough passages. And that's why I I believe I really have to thread the needle here as we're going through this. Because on one hand, I don't want to water down these passages. Like I'm not here just to justify God's actions. Like If my entire sermon was spent trying to get God off the hook, it would be a disservice to you, and it would be a dishonor to God. So if these plagues do strike a bit of fear in you, then I think that's a good thing. I think that's how you're supposed to react when you encounter the great I Am. There's supposed to be some, some fear there. But on the other hand, I don't want to perpetuate this stereotype of the Old Testament God being cruel and vindictive. And then 
we have this idea that once you get on into the New Testament, he seems to kind of soften up and he becomes benevolent and gracious. I, I think some would suggest, uh, uh, assuming that this is the case, they would suggest that this either demonstrates the progressive nature of all religion, religions and how they just simply evolve over time, or it would prove for some people that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're dealing with two different gods and two different religions. In fact, the, the very first heretic, the very first heresy that the early church had to deal with was a second century bishop named Marcion, and he perpetuated this very view of the Old Testament God as being cruel and vindictive, and he had to be replaced in our Christian worship with the New Testament God. Well, the early Christians roundly rejected his proposal, and they deemed it to be heresy. And so that's the kind of error I want to make sure that we avoid here. Because every time, every time we try to make the teaching of God or teaching about God more palatable, more relatable, more understandable, I think we risk an imbalance in our theology where we end up on either side of error. And so that's why I'm trying to thread the needle. That's why I'm trying to stay on the line to not fall into error on either side. And to do that, you have to receive all that the Bible teaches, not favoring one set of verses over the other, and to really be okay with any tension that you find in Scripture. And so what I'm saying here is that studying the 10 plagues is not going to be an easy task. We should take great care to let Scripture speak, especially when it speaks in ways that disturb our sensibilities and challenge our preconceived views about God and how God ought to operate in this world. So we're, we're not going to, this morning, we're not going to muzzle any text. We're going to hold all of them, even if it means holding some intention. And so the way I'm going to do this to tackle these three fairly long chapters is by not going into all of them in detail, but I want to offer you three different perspectives on how to read these passages. And so if you want to follow along, there's an outline in your bulletin. Uh, first, we're going to read these, these plagues historically. Second, we're going to read these plagues theologically. And lastly, we're going to read them personally. So these are the three perspectives I want to bring to you. So let's start by reading the plagues historically. And I realize right off the bat, this is going to be hard for some of you. It's hard to take these stories seriously as historical events that actually took place three, some 3,000 years ago. Because for you, it seems more likely that these stories are mere myth, that they're legendary tales. They're, they're like King Arthur and Camelot. Right? They're just beloved stories passed down from generation to generation that transmit important aspects of a people's culture, but they don't have to be historically factual to be truly meaningful to a culture. So many people read Exodus the same way. Perhaps there were a few elements rooted in history. Maybe ancient Egypt did have a history of a large slave force comprised mostly of Israelites, and maybe there was a leader among them named Moses, and eventually uh, there was a successful slave revolt. But all the other fanciful elements in the story are just not taken seriously. And I can understand why you might draw a similar conclusion. And 
That's why many biblical scholars have gone to great length to explain these plague events by natural causes. You know, in, in the course of these last few weeks, I've read a number of elaborate theories trying to uh, explain these phenomenon, the ph- phenomena, um, tying it to Egypt's geography, tying it to its seasonal weather patterns, demonstrating how all the plagues are interconnected and how one is just a natural cause of the other. And most of these scholars, they are Christians, and they still believe God is behind these events, but what they're trying to do is to show how these plagues could have occurred without a supernatural intrusion, intrusion into the created order. And so, like I said last week, it's been argued that the Nile uh, didn't literally turn into blood, but just the color blood red. And it was explained by a natural phenomenon that occasionally occurs in the Nile, where in certain areas, an overabundance of red sediment collects and allows this toxic algae to grow, which then causes a mass death of fish and makes the Nile water undrinkable. Well, the next plague that invasion of frogs is explained by the frogs being driven out of the Nile due to that inhospitable environment caused by the toxic algae. And the reason they all suddenly die off at the exact same time is because they were all infected with a bacterial disease, most likely anthrax, due to their exposure to all of that dead, rotting fish. And then you got the third and fourth plagues, the invasion of gnats, and flies, and that can be explained by these bugs having incubated in the corpses of all these rotted frogs. And the fifth plague of pestilence killing off the livestock, and the sixth plague of an outbreak of, of festering boils all over the skin, they're attributed to disease being spread by all of those gnats and flies. And the seventh plague of hailstorm, it might be unique in its de- degree of destruction, but it's not really peculiar in this region. Hailstorms do happen. And the same could be said of the locust invasion, the eighth plague. They do occur. And that darkness in the ninth plague is typically attributed to a powerful sandstorm that lasted for three days. Scholars point to what it says in chapter 10, verse 21, about it being a darkness to be felt. And so they say, well, it's not something to do with the sun. It's just a really heavy sandstorm. So, you know, there, there have been many attempts to provide plausible, naturalistic explanations for these plagues, and some of them have merit, and it might help you. It might help any of you that are struggling with the concept of the miraculous. But in the end, even if these plagues can be explained by natural causes, my point here is that it does not rule out God's hand behind all of it. But here again is where we have to thread that needle. We don't want to overly stress these natural causes to the point that we end up ignoring what Scripture actually says and to minimize God's role in presiding over all of these events. These plagues, they may be natural phenomena, but the point is that they commence and they cease at the very word of the Lord. And so, for example, if you want to look with me in chapter 8, Look in chapter 8, verse 8, and this is where Moses, I mean, so, uh, sorry, Pharaoh asks Moses and Aaron to plead with the Lord to take away the frogs, and if you do that, I'll let the people go. And so in verse 9, Moses is so bold 
as to let Pharaoh pick the time when Moses is going to make that prayer pleading to the Lord. So look at verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me, um, is this, no, this is, yes, uh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And so then in verse 10, Pharaoh says, tomorrow, make that prayer tomorrow. And that's exactly what Moses does. He waits until the very next day. And when he makes that prayer to the Lord, then the Lord does it. All the frogs immediately die out. And so it's coming at the word of the Lord, and it ends at the word of the Lord. If you consider as well with me the third plague involving all these gnats, look in chapter 8, verse 16. And it's the Lord instructing Aaron to use his staff to strike the dust of the earth, and the dust becomes gnats in all the land of Egypt. And so it actually is telling us where these gnats come from, as opposed to coming from the corpse of a frog that's coming from the dust of the earth. This is something that the Lord is doing. And then in verse 18, the Egyptian magicians fail to replicate results. Earlier, when it came to the blood and when it came to the frogs, the magicians were able to reproduce something similar, but now they're at a loss. Now they recognize this is a God thing happening. And so the text itself is pointing to a supernatural cause to these events. And so let's not ignore what the text actually says in order to simply force a more naturalistic explanation. These plagues, yes, they are all connected to forces of nature, but they're still acts of God. And these plagues, along with all the events in the book of Exodus, are presented, of acts, presented as acts of God that actually took place in time and space. They're not presented to us as legendary tales, but as events that happened in history. And friends, that does make a difference. If, if these passages were meant to be read merely as parables that teach us a moral lesson, then their rootedness in history would make no difference. It really wouldn't matter but the text presents itself not as ahistorical parables, but as records of God's redemptive acts to be retold to future generations of God's people. So listen to uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. The Lord says he plans to show these 10 plagues, these 10 proofs, these 10 signs, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. These events are to be retold over and over again to subsequent generations of Israelites because God knows that century, centuries later, when Israel finds itself in exile once again, this time in Babylonian exile, they are going to derive hope and comfort from these stories of the Exodus. Not because they're, they're, they're these nice parables that convey some moral lessons, some meaningful stories to them. No, but because they are reminders of how God literally 
rescued their forefathers and how he is merciful and he is faithful and he's going to do it again. He will rescue them from their slavery once again. And so for the Israelites, it made a world of difference to read these stories as historical events. So that's what I commend to you, to read these passages historically. Okay, so that's one perspective that I want to offer, reading the plagues historically. Now let's consider a second perspective. Let's read these plagues theologically. One of the main points I made last week is how these plagues were not just random displays of divine power, as if God were just you know, flexing his muscles here to, 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 to impress people, try, or, or just trying to punish Egypt in order to, to prove how strong he is. We emphasized how each of these plagues are pointed messages. They are pointed theological messages. And I would argue that a number of theological messages are being conveyed here. Let me just point out a couple for you to consider. One of those messages is that the God of Israel has no rivals. He has no rivals. The Lord was essentially, through these plagues, he was kind of picking on the gods, the so-called gods of Egypt. So the Egyptians, they worshiped the Nile as the source of life. And so he, he struck it and he made it bleed and reek of death. They worshiped a fertility goddess named, named Hecate who was often depicted with the head of a frog. And so this frog invasion was really just a way of God giving the people over to their idolatries. And then killing off all of those frogs proves God's power over this God. Um, And turning the dust of the earth into gnats could also be a swipe at another Egyptian god, this time the god named Geb, who is the god of the earth, that is the ground, Or killing the cattle was probably an insult to Hathor, a goddess that was typically depicted as a cow. And commentators all agree that the ninth plague was definitely a direct challenge to sun worship and to the cult of Ra, the Egyptian sun god. And so the Lord here is making it clear that he alone is God. He has no rivals. In chapter 9, verse 14, he says it right out. This is right before he sends the hailstorm. Moses tells Pharaoh that the Lord says, chapter 9, verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. I have no rivals. Another theological message being conveyed by these plagues has to do with the consequences of disobedience. The consequences of disobedience. You see, when we disobey God, there are certainly eternal consequences that we have to face after we die. But there are also consequences right now in the present. When we disobey, we unleash forces of decreation, forces of chaos into our lives and into the world. And so that's why God chose signs and wonders so closely tied to forces of nature, to elements of creation. If you think about it, if God, if all he wanted to do was change Pharaoh's mind 
by, by, by making his presence known to him, then he could have come up with something more spectacular than what we read here in the passages. You know, he, he could have made a hand appear out of thin air and write a message on the wall saying, let my people go. He did that in another book, in the book of Daniel. Or he could have just snapped a finger and an entire host of angels could have instantly appeared, all with flaming swords in their hands to intimidate Pharaoh. He could have done that. But instead, God chose to use signs that were so natural that they risked being mistaken merely as natural disasters. Why go down that route? Why choose plagues that are so tied to forces of nature? Well, it's because he has a theological message to convey. Biblical scholars have noted how these plague events, how they line up very well with the six days of creation and how what's happening here in Exodus chapter 7 to 10 is essentially an undoing of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You see, in Genesis, God brought order out of chaos. But here in Exodus, the creation order is unraveling. It's chaos out of order. And that's why these plagues have been described as acts of decreation. So the first and second plagues, they're a direct attack on the Nile where both fish and frogs die, which, if you think about it, is an undoing of the fifth day of creation where the uh, animals of the sea are given life. Commentators point out how there are key terms found in chapter 8 that hearken back to Genesis chapter 1. So, for example, in chapter 8, verse 3, it says that the Nile is now going to swarm with frogs. And then later in verse 21, God says he's going to send swarms of flies on you. And that term, swarm, or in some translations, to team, that term is found in day five of creation, where living creatures are said to swarm or to team within the waters, and flying things are to swarm about the earth. But now, here in Exodus, the swarming leads not to greater beauty and order, but the chaos, the destruction. There are other examples of this. The fifth plague of pestilence, killing livestock. That's a reversal of the sixth day of creation where the beasts of the earth are given life. Or the seventh and eighth plagues of hail and locusts, particularly what they do is they destroy all the vegetation in the land. And that's in direct contrast to the third day of creation where you see vegetation sprouting up all over the land. And of course, the ninth plague of darkness is a direct reversal of the very first day of creation, where God separated light from darkness. And so there's a reversal happening here of the creation order. Man was made in the image of God. We were given dominion over creation, but now here in our passage, creation is taking dominion over man. Animals are invading. Animals are taking over the land. Elements of creation are failing or they're causing mass destruction among us. What's the theological message behind all of this? What is God trying to convey? Friends, these plagues are teaching us that there are natural consequences to our disobedience. 
when we disobey, we don't just incur God's wrath. We unleash forces of decreation and disorder into our lives and into this world. Here's an illustration to help you, help you get this. So imagine with me that your cholesterol level is through the roof. And some of you guys, you've been to the doctor recently, and this might be describing you. You know, and, and the doctor probably told you, you need to watch your diet. You need to stop eating red meat or cut out this from, 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 from your diet. Now, you could just simply ignore your doctor's orders. You can disobey. And what would be the consequences? Well, sure, you're going to displease your doctor, but you also unleash forces of decreation in regards to your own health. Instead of leading the greater order and flourishing of life, your poor dietary habits will lead you to greater disorder and possibly even death. You might get a heart attack and die. So you have to realize that your doctor is not trying to keep you from having fun. He's trying to keep you from harming yourself. Those orders are given in accordance with your nature, with how you were created. They're intended for your flourishing, but to ignore them, to disobey them, is really self-harm. You're unleashing forces of decreation and destruction into your life. So just consider now God as really the great physician who knows how you tick better than any doctor because he's the one who actually created you. And in the same way, his commands, they accord with your nature, with how you were designed by him. And so they were intended for your good, for your flourishing. Obedience to God leads to greater life, while on the other hand, disobedience leads to self-harm, to self-destruction. So let's just think of some examples here. For example, we see in Scripture how God commands for sexual intimacy to be experienced and enjoyed only in the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. Why? Because that accords with our nature, with the way that we were designed by God. We were designed to enjoy intimacy within the covenant of marriage. And so to ignore that design to disobey this created order is to unleash forces of decreation into your life. The thing is, you might not even realize you're doing that to yourself. Because, because of the fact that you're not confronted by some kind of angel who just suddenly appears before you and your partner, or by some other undeniably supernatural act of judgment, you might therefore conclude that your sin is not all that serious but that would be a failure to recognize the forces of the creation. Because all that anxiety, all that insecurity, all that frustration that you have in your relationship, those are the natural consequences of your disobedience. Repenting of your actions and reserving that kind of intimacy within marriage, it won't just please God, it will result in greater peace, security, and satisfaction in that romantic relationship of yours. Because that's part of God's created order. That's how you were designed. Here's another example for you. God made us to work. 
Even before the fall of man, Adam was given a job to tend the garden, to name all of the animals. But worship, not work, worship was meant to be central. The worship of God was still always meant to be the top priority. And so if you fall into a pattern of overworking, putting work on top, placing it above your health, above your family, above God himself, then you are unleashing those same destructive forces into your life. Yeah, you're probably not going to see a hand suddenly appear writing on the wall, go home, play with your kids. He's not going to do that. But you might therefore then not realize, you might not realize that you are still under judgment, even though a hand didn't appear. Because all of that disorder in your home life, that, de- that deterioration of your own health, the disintegration in your spiritual life, those are actually acts of God. Repenting and reprioritizing will restore the health of your spiritual life, your home life, your own body. And so, friends, if we ignore this, this theological message that's being conveyed here, we risk being in a situation where we are under judgment for disobedience and we don't even realize it. God is sending you signs and wonders, but they're just so natural that you don't even notice. Perhaps those troubles and hardships you're facing, the ones that you assumed were just natural consequences, are actually signs from God. Perhaps he's sending a message to you to turn from your ways and to turn back to him. Let's not miss that message as we see here in our passage. Well, this leads to our third perspective for reading the plagues. We've read the plagues historically, theologically, and now let's read them personally. And this is where I want us to bring the passage even closer to home. What I want to do is to zero in on chapter 8 and Pharaoh's reaction to the invasion of frogs, especially in verse 8. So let me read verse 8 to you. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And what I find so fascinating is how here Pharaoh now knows who God is, and he actually addresses him by his proper name, his name Yahweh. Because remember back in chapter 5, when the name Yahweh meant nothing to him? Like back in chapter 5, verse 2, he's all like, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? I don't know him. I'm not going let to let these people go. But now, Pharaoh knows. He recognizes that these plagues are not merely natural events. They're not just a bunch of magic tricks. His court magicians, they're able to, to replicate this sign. They, they are able to produce more frogs, but they couldn't do what he really needed them to do, which is not to make more frogs. That's not what he wanted. He wanted them to get rid of the frogs, and yet they couldn't do it. So Pharaoh acknowledges God's power, which is why he is asking for prayer. Pharaoh now believes in the power of prayer. But what this is all demonstrating for us is that there's a huge difference between true spirituality and mere superstition. You can believe in a higher power, 
You can believe in a creator God. You can believe in the power of prayer. You can know a lot about God, but until he is your Lord, until you trust in him and surrender to him as your Lord and Savior, friend, you are just dabbling in superstition like Pharaoh and the court magicians. Notice what Pharaoh asks Moses and Aaron to pray for. He just wants to be rid of the frogs, right? He just wants immediate relief. He's just dealing with the symptoms here while ignoring the cause, ignoring the root problem. And don't we do the same? And when we do the same, we treat our faith as mere superstition where we pray or we worship or we serve God, but really just as a mean to relieve ourselves of all of our troubles. It's like we're negotiating with God. Look, God, I'll concede to these demands of yours if you will come and bring some relief in my life. I'll surrender some aspects of my life, but there are still some limits here. I still want a degree of control. So come on, Lord, let's, let's come to an agreement here. And you see Pharaoh trying to do that very thing, to negotiate. Look in chapter 8, verses 25 to 29. As the flies are, are buzzing about, Pharaoh tries to negotiate with God. He tells Moses, okay, you can go sacrifice to, to, to Yahweh, but just stay within the borders of Egypt. But God won't have it. There's no negotiating with him. Later on, in chapter 10, verse 8, during the locust invasion, Pharaoh tries again to make a compromise here. He says, okay, okay, all the men of Israel can go. You just have to leave behind all the women and children. And then, as the land is covered in darkness, in chapter 10, verse 24, he tries again. He says, okay, 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 all of you can go now, but you have to leave behind all of your animals. But God, each time, is simply not having it. When it comes to the great I am, friends, there is no negotiating. There's only submitting. And so, friends, this is where we have to do some self-reflection. Does our relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord, basically amount to one big negotiation where we're trying to cut a deal with him so he can remove some of the nuisances in our lives? to remove the pain or the suffering or all the symptomatic issues. A lot of times we act like Pharaoh. We just want to be rid of all the frogs and all the gnats and the locusts. We just want all the boils to go away and all the hail to stop. And once they do, once God mercifully does bring relief, we tend to go back to ignoring him and disobeying him just like Pharaoh. And that just proves that we don't understand Christianity. The gospel offers relief, not just from all these troubles on the surface. Friends, the relief the gospel offers is relief to the very root of your problems. And the very root of your problems has to do with the hardness of your heart. Just like Pharaoh, we all start off with a hard heart towards God. We don't want to do what he says. We don't like submitting to his word. And so we do our own thing. We disobey now, in our previous point, I stressed how our disobedience unleashes forces of decreation and destruction into our lives. And I think that's a very important point to make, since many of us only associate disobedience with incurring God's wrath and judgment, not realizing the harm that we actually do to ourselves. But let's not kid ourselves, because if we're talking now about what's really at the root of our problem, well, then God's wrath and judgment 
are still it. That truly is the root of our problem. And that's affirmed even in our passages. Because as these plagues continue to increase and continue to intensify, what do they end with? They end with darkness covering the entire land. And biblically, darkness is a very common imagery depicting, symbolizing God's anger, God's wrath. And the plagues conclude with the very death of Egypt's firstborn sons. But the darkness and the death in our passages are meant to foreshadow another display of wrath and judgment when another unexpected darkness descended upon the land and concluded with the death of another firstborn son. But friends, there's good news in this subsequent story that the Bible tells. Because this darkness in this good news is that the darkness and the anger it represents wasn't directed at sinners like us, but rather at a substitute who was bearing the sins of others as he hung there on a cross. And though that death was something sinners like us completely deserve, it was a Savior who was bearing that death for us in our place. And so perhaps the Lord is calling you to receive his son Jesus because he really wants to get to the root of your troubles, to the heart of your problems. Maybe this morning God is going to do something in your life. He's going to exchange your hard heart for a new heart of faith. Let me go to God and let me ask him to do that for you.